Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. That is me, Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. So we're back, baby. We're back for season two. Gabe, are you charged? Are you excited? I am pumped up for some twin movies. Twin movie action. Well, we do know that every year Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So back for season two, Gabe and I ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about an elite police squad that's tasked with infiltrating a high-rise building run by a ruthless drug lord. It's The Raid, Redemption versus Dread. Let the shooting begin. It's a game. <laughs> the, the shooting. The what? The shooting. Oh, shooting. Okay. <laughs> Not the shitting, the shooting. No, no, I got that. <laughs> so let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and our flashback to our first encounter with them. So on April the 13th, 2012, the Raid Redemption was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. A SWAT team becomes trapped in a tenement run by a ruthless mobster and his army of killers and thugs. So Gabe, did you originally catch the Raid when it was released? At the cinema, and what was that experience like? I did see this at the cinema. I think there was me and four other dudes in the cinema, but I think we're all very enthusiastic about the ridiculous, non-stop action violence of this movie. So, yeah, I'm proud to say that I did see this at the movies, and I've caught it a whole bunch of times on Blu-ray since. What about you? Yeah, I think I caught it at the movies, but I can't quite recall. What I do recall is that this film played, I think, at Sundance, in maybe January 2012 or January 2011. And I recall all of the critical buzz from these uh, websites like Slash Film and uh, the Slash Film podcast, websites and podcasts that are cinephiles that cover those big festivals each year. And they were just over the moon with this. And I do recall the time being a little bit cynical as well as curious because I thought to myself, Okay, this is the movie that is the foreign art house movie that is really just an action movie, but it kind of ticks both boxes. And I was surprised it was in Sundance because even though it's in different language, it is unashamedly a genre film. And so I went along really curious to see what it was doing differently, but realizing that just because it's in Indonesian, it doesn't necessarily make it a better action film or a better film. I was curious to see what they could do. And also, I was really obsessed with the making of this film about this guy who basically lived there, a Welsh guy, and he and his DOP sort of made this film with, you know, scissors, sticky tape and string. And I wanted to basically see how good a low-budget film could be. I saw it, I think, at a an art house cinema in Sydney. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing art house about this movie. I mean, it's just like a very superior action film. I mean, and what's wrong with Sundance programming that? I mean, it's better than some more twee crap. Oh, okay. No offence no offense to the twee crap that uh, occasionally plays at Sundance. <laughs> Sorry. We'll get to the coming-of-age movies like there at Sundance. All right, let's jump to our experience first seeing Dread. So later on the 21st of September 2012, Dread was released, and here's its IMDb synopsis. In a violent, futuristic city where the police have the authority to act as judge, jury, and executioner, a team of cops with a trainee 
take down a gang that deals the reality-altering drug, slow-mo. Gabe, walk me through when and how you first watch Dread. I suppose I'm one of the people out there who's responsible for there being no Dread sequel, as I did not see this at the movies and caught it just much later on, I don't know, streaming or something. To be honest, I regret not seeing it at the movies. I think this would have played really well on a big screen, but I must have just seen it on telly at some point later, probably based on someone's recommendation because, you know, word of mouth around this thing was pretty good, just not when it was at the cinema, I guess. Yeah, I saw it at the cinema and I really enjoyed it. I was curious to see it because it's written by Alex Garland, he of Mm. Ex Machina, which he wrote and directed, and he also wrote The Beach back in 2000, I think, Danny Boyle's film with Leonardo DiCaprio. And Sunshine and 28 Days Later. And Annihilation. So, yeah, this guy's got a great track record with genre films. And so I was really curious to see, having not sort of heard from him for a bit, to see what his adaptation was of a pre-existing property. So I really enjoyed it on the big screen. It actually held up quite well, particularly the slow-mo sequences. Like, I think most audiences are suckers for extreme slow motion. It is quite entertaining to watch. And on the big screen, it was quite captivating. So I really enjoyed it. And I've watched it a few times on Video On Demand since. And I think both these films, but particularly Dread, do replay quite well. And they can easily be played in the background, particularly Dread because there aren't subtitles. And I guess it's a little bit slower in terms of the action. So you can kind of be cleaning the kitchen, cleaning your room, doing some jobs at the same time, and sort of watching it in the background. Sure, sure. I'd actually go the other way and say, while I totally agree, both of these movies have really great rewatchability. It's the raid for me that you could put on more often and just, you know, just snack on Iku Uwai, you know, breaking necks and stabbing people in the face and just causing mayhem. <laughs> causing mayhem. Yeah, I just find though with some action films, particularly ones that are really well executed, I need to focus. I need to watch the detail, watch the right, cuts. Right. And it almost feels disrespectful to have it playing in the background. Oh. Look at you. Oh, I don't want to disrespect the raid by playing in the background, but I'll put the dread on in the background because because why? That doesn't make any sense, man. No, that makes heaps of sense. Sometimes there are instances where you feel it'd be disrespectful to the filmmakers to be playing in the background. So what you're doing is giving all of your attention, watching the cuts, watching the very carefully choreographed fight sequences and the ballet, if you will, of camera angles. But when it's a crap movie, it's like, you know what? There's nothing to appreciate here. It's just sort of like unsophisticated action, in which case I don't need to actually give it my best. Sure, but like you've seen it before. You're not one of those like twats who's like, I'm watching The Godfather Part 2 for the first time, but I'm going to live tweet this thing like a fuck knuckle. You've seen this before. Like, yeah, you can put whatever you want in the background. You know, you can do the dishes to whatever movie you like. I don't think it's, uh, there's no rules here, man. There's no rules. Well, first of all, I may be a twat, so thank you for giving me the get out jail card. But let's not be too quick on that until you've heard my review well, you should, of both these movies. You shouldn't have live tweeted The Godfather Part 2 for your first viewing, should you? <laughs> Do you actually know someone who has done that? No, but every now and again on – I just pulled that movie out of – you know, every now and again on Twitter there is some asshole who's like, strap in, I'm doing – you know, pick some classy movie. Pick the classiest of all movies. I do recall seeing someone before on Twitter make some sort of remark, someone with 220 followers who said, all right, I'm about to watch Star Wars for the first time, or 
I'm playing Star Wars the first time for my girlfriend and I live tweet her responses. Here we go. Oh, yeah, that's awful. I mean, strap in, guys. I'm doing Pressburger's 1948 drama, The Red Shoes, for the first time. We're live tweeting this, baby. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not that, but, you know, it's sort of like this debate around subtitles in movies and stuff and you've got people going, God damn it, movies with subtitles suck because how can I look at my phone while I watch the movie? That's actually the worst, yeah. isn't it? Like, how dare you make me concentrate? I'm watching a television series right now on Netflix called Messiah, and it has lots of subtitles. And that's a great example where you can't be doing two things at once, otherwise you'll actually miss what's going on. And I think at least half the series has subtitles. So you do actually have to focus old school and focus on one thing at a time. At least The Raid, I suppose, has so much action that um, you could occasionally look down, you know, you could pick the crumbs off your, off your shirt or whatever, those Dorito dust, and still keep track of what's going on. It's not a dialogue-intensive movie. It's certainly an ass-kicking intensive movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's work out how we actually got here in the first place. So let's work out how these films came about at a similar moment in time. So the backstory to The Raid is that director Gareth Evans came across the idea when he moved to Indonesia to film a documentary about the country's martial arts. And it was suggested by his wife, who's of Indonesian-Japanese descent. So he met Iko, do you pronounce it Iwas? Iko Uwe? Iko oh, yeah, Iko Iwe. He met Iko Iwe, a Silat practitioner, that's the martial art, who was working as a delivery man for a phone company based in Jakarta. And then he cast him in his first film. I think it's pronounced Maratu. Maratu, yeah. And then The Raid. And then after that, they thought, you know what, let's kind of kick it up a notch. And they went for something slightly bigger. And that's where the idea of The Raid came from, in which case it was actually bigger in scale, but like most efficient low-budget films set in one location. And so they shot a teaser trailer that proved to be more complex than what they originally anticipated. So they worked out they were then short of funding, set to go back and try and simplify the story again and essentially by streamlining the entire film and bring it down to this very simple one-line narrative building baddies first floor upper floor they were able to reduce the overall costs and still give it the kind of punch of a full and action film and they also try to save costs by shooting in a kind of quasi documentary style handheld and by also using at the time, you call a prosumer high-def camera, which was the Panasonic AF100, which does give it that kind of slightly grainy look. And then it was attached to this sort of like round fixed rig, which the EOP kind of like operated like holding a giant steering wheel. So that's the basic structure of how they made the film. Do you know what the budget was? No, surprise me. IMDb says 1.1 million, whether that's true or not. But, I mean, it's pretty amazing for 1.1 million. I mean, people spend 10, 100 times that amount and don't end up with just fight scenes and choreography and photography, like fight photography as good as this. And maybe it's like you said, because it's sort of quite stripped back. And although it's sort of doco in style, it's not doesn't have a lot of those. It's not super cutty, but it's pretty impressive for 1.1 if that was the budget. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the ways it works is that by having those the camera circling the fight scenes and so on, 
they were able to get quite a lot of coverage and so on. I mean, it would have been quite tricky to edit, I imagine. And I guess for the audiences to this podcast who aren't aware as to where money goes on a budget, fight scenes that are this intricate traditionally take a long time to film and then stitch together, which means essentially your budget is pushed out over many more days. So it often comes down to basically being a long shoot, even though you don't have explosions or CG, computer-generated visual effects, it just takes a long time to shoot. So you're right, for $1.1 million, to have ownership of a pretty good set location like this and to shoot over such a long period of time, it's really impressive. I think Gareth Evans, not like prevised with previous software, but I'm pretty sure he sort of practiced shot just with his stunt guys and actors on his iPhone, a lot of the sequences. So he really knew exactly what he needed to get as opposed to just putting three cameras on the thing, shooting close up, chopping it all together choppily and adding sound effects. Yeah, I read the same thing. I think it's a really effective way. It's basically iPhone live storyboarding, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think the great thing about that is that you essentially see exactly what you need and you map it out. Now, some people would criticise that as being too much, going too far, like going beyond storyboards and essentially doing the first visual draft of a film. But my attitude is, why not? Like, why not get it right? Make the mistakes when you're filming on an iPhone. Get those intricate moves working so that they're effective, but they're also safe. And then basically bring in the other camera and the crew members with sound and then kind of like do a second pass. I mean, we do it in screenwriting. We do it in editing and post-production. Why not do it more in actual production as well? It just seems like a really reasonable thing to do in terms of perfecting something on a really low budget. Yeah, totally. You'd spend more time trying to figure it out on the day and probably get worse stuff if you're just scratching your head going, oh, what about we do this and this? And you'd probably double-guess yourself, overshoot it. Whereas if you just do it well right the first time, having previously, what did you call it, like iPhone storyboarded or something? Yeah. Whatever the, yeah, I think it's really, really sharp. And you can tell in the film. Exactly. So let's jump to where we got with Dread. How did Dread come about at the same time? Well, for those fans of Sylvester Stallone and those fans of comic book adaptations in the 1990s, and for those fans of just general Nick Cage era Hollywood action, tick, tick, tick for Gabe, we all know if we don't know, we should know that Judge Dredd came out in 1995 with the beloved Sylvester Stallone. And this film, Dredd, is based on the same property, a comic book series that actually originates from Britain. The background to this one is that Alex Garland began writing the script back in 2006. And the idea was to just try and have, I guess, a contemporary adaptation that was in keeping with other American adaptations of DC and Marvel properties. So they shot this one over in the UK and it had a decent budget of 30 to 45 million. And they tried to rectify what hadn't been done in the past. So we'll talk about this later on in relation to characterization and so on. But they did what they did in the comic books, which was they restored Judge Dredd's helmet so that he always wears it which apparently is very much canon, that he never takes it off. And so in this film, that is the case. We only ever see his drooping, surly lower lip. We never see his eyes, his nose, the rest of his face, and we read all expressions from his mouth. 
You've seen the 1995 Judge Dredd, though, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah, right. But you haven't read the Judge Dredd comics, right? Or you? No, I have not. No, neither have I. So my entire experience of uh, the character of Judge Dredd is based on the 1995 and 2012 movies. So if we get something wrong, <laughs> or say something that's because that is in fact canon in the comics, I don't care. I don't know about that. Well, I've got to apologise. I've already got something wrong already. I did mention that this was filmed in the UK and, correction, it was actually filmed oh, in South Africa? Cape Town, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So this was filmed actually for 13 weeks, but then the second unit, which does the action, was filmed over seven weeks. And this was filmed more like a traditional Hollywood movie. And by that I mean you have what's called the main unit, which shoots the main actors talking, and the second unit, which shoots the action sequences or what we call cutaway sequences or exterior shots, shot separately. Whereas The Raid, being a low-budget film and Gareth Evans being much more hands-on and I guess the visionary behind the action, he actually did everything, which is pretty normal for a low-budget film. The only other point of interest for what it's worth is this film had more of everything, including quality camera gear. It was shot on the Red MX camera in 3D and with the SI 2K and Phantom Flex high-speed cameras to film the pretty epic slow-mo sequences where they shot 4,000 frames per second. Wow. pretty remarkable. And this was in 2012 at the time when people were still trying to make 3D a thing three years after Avatar. So it was shot in 2D, and then some elements were converted to 3D. I didn't see it in 3D, and I wasn't a big fan of the post converted 3D films. So for that reason, at the time, it wouldn't have interested me. But that's the basic angle as to how this film was made at the same time. And so essentially, it doesn't appear that there was any connection anyway. It was just serendipitous. No, yeah, I remember a few people saying, oh, Dread is just a ripoff of the raid. But as you said, if Alex Garland had started writing this thing in 2006, also the amount of time it would take to have written and shot Dread anyway, there's no way that similarity, a cop going up a building, I guess, is just coincidental. Exactly. I mean, this particular, let's call it universal story or cliche. Yes, it is a universal story. It's one of the seven classic stories. Uh, Lovers from different families overcome their rivalry and also cop goes up building. Yeah. I mean, this one was up there when when Plato was uh, philosophising over the true stories that define us. And when Shakespeare was crafting his epic stories, there was stories of love, unrequited love, stories of minotaurs in mazes, and stories of cops going up high-rise buildings. But he was way ahead of his time with Poetics Plato, wasn't he? That that little epilogue about Judge Dredd? Oh, very much so. I mean, he, even Aristotle had a uh, a female cop in a plane that was flying. Uh, scrub that. <laughs> I can't make that work. <laughs> Which one? Oh, you're right. That it was Aristotle who wrote Poetics anyway. I stand corrected. It That's right. Plato. I don't know what this dumbass Plato did. <laughs> okay. Let's us dumbasses do our re- reviews. So let's start with The Raid. Gabe, did you like it? What worked for you and what didn't float your boat? Basically, this movie rules. It is start to beginning, fucking awesome, and nothing doesn't work for me in this. I love this movie. It is super violent, super well made in terms of the action choreography, really simple premise, doesn't overcomplicate it too much, and just pure ownage. Fucking 
awesome. Yeah, that's my review. It's fucking awesome. It's so sophisticated. Like, I just love how you touch on all the details about the characterization, the themes that touch your heart, that pull your heartstrings. Actually, to be fair- You, you want the themes that pull your heartstrings? Go watch Lassie Goes Home or something. You want to see some mean motherfuckers just wail on each other for- What's the runtime of this thing? 87 minutes? No, one hour and 41 minutes? Wow. They gave you like 20 extra minutes. 80 minutes would have been enough. Actually, for long-time listeners, you'll appreciate that one of Gabe's criteria for a good film is pretty basic. It has to be around 90 minutes. And if a film can be oh, around 90 minutes- 84. <laughs> 84. Yep. Are you excluding yep. Yep. or including credits? Including credits. Credits are just to pad out your runtime so that your 84-minute movie is actually 82 minutes, and that's just perfect. Whereas The Raid, apparently 141 minutes. Look at all those bonus minutes. In this case, I'll allow it. Those are good bonus minutes. Okay. Look, for me, my enthusiasm isn't as great as yours, so I apologize for what's coming. I enjoy The Raid. It's a fun film. It is what it is. I mean, if you like the story of a guy that, ascends a building, punching and kicking various people on the way, and that's pretty much it, and shot in a really unique, visceral way. Like this appears that these guys are both actors and stunt formers combined. In fact, they're martial artists who have been co-opted into capital A acting, or little a in this case, and they do it really well. To me, this is the type of action that we became more used to, basically, in John Wick and Deadpool by those two directors who originally were stunt choreographers themselves. And that sort of action was just felt more visceral in it. There was a window of time I think we had around, correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe, it was around 2002 when Bourne came out, the Bourne identity, through to about 2010, 2012, where we had a form of action and editing, which I think has been referred to as chaos cinema. where Shaky cam. Or shaky cam. And it was a combination of two things. It was this documentary-style camera work that Paul Greengrass, who is the director of the Bourne films 2, 3, and 4, I think. Yeah, he directed the the newest one. Jason Bourne. And so he basically popularised this idea of chaos cinema where rather than having sort of a conventional mix of the wider shot cutting into a closer shot, and this sense of geography where you always knew where the actors were and you had a sense the camera was always clearly showing where the punch was coming from and where the punch was going. And then he kind of brought his documentary aesthetic to the second Bourne film, The Bourne Supremacy, and that was basically the idea of shaky cam and often what you'd refer to as erratic cuts. And Michael Bay does a bit of this as well with his editors where It doesn't quite make sense if you break it down shot by shot, but it's disorientating. And so you actually feel like you're almost in a fight scene yourself. And that feeling of disorientation reflects the moment of the fight. Whereas in the raid, it's wider shots. You see the punches connecting. There's always a sense as to where the actors, the stunt people are in every scene. And... It's, I guess, much more logical and truthful representation of the fight rather than being a sense or emotion of the fight. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's all fair. I mean, personally, I think Greengrass did the style quite well. It was just a whole bunch of lesser directors imitating it that sort of 
started to make it feel like a a bad crutch that you know filmmakers could lean on. It relies on very well done heavy sound design as well to kind of trick the viewer into thinking that all these flurry of close-up movement within frame is actually well-choreographed fights. Do you want to jump back to something you said, though, Ben, which is in your short review there of The Raid, you said it is what it is. What's wrong with it being it is what it is? It does what it does so well that isn't it in a way some sort of like, what is one of those really lame uh, phrases, um, pure cinema? You're 100% right. It is what it is means it is pure in what it's trying to be, but you've got to love that genre. So to me, it's like, you know, a cream brulee dessert. You can be served the best cream brulee in the world. But if you don't like cream brulee, eh, it's kind of wasted on you. For me, I love action movies, but I want a little bit more character backstory and character beats in that story. So basically, I want to have my action scenes punctuated with more subplots, and more character beats, which means this film is a fantastic film. But for someone like me who does want a few more of those character beats, and as I said, like I do want more subplots, then it can only kind of rise to a certain point to keep me engaged. And that's on me, not on the film. See, I thought it was just incredibly efficient in the way it sets up Iku Wise's character. He's got a pregnant wife at home. He, he's a good cop. He goes to his job. That's all the backstory you need. I don't need to know. And then the film reveals, oh, he's got a brother. His brother is working undercover. What else do I need to know about the guy? It's not just about the backstory, though. It's about how the plot unfolds. Like I mentioned subplots before. This doesn't have any. This is a clean A to B storyline, which is fine. But I like the stories that usually have different layers to them. And so you'll have your main character doing something. And then you'll have a subplot which will involve side characters doing something else that connects to the A plot. That's just me. So that's what comes back to tomato, tomato. It depends what you like. And I like this, but if given a choice, I'd prefer a meal with a few more courses. Okay. And did Dread, for instance, have those sorts of like side dishes? Was it creme brulee? Well, let's jump to our review of Dread and compare it. So in that, I'll go first in that case. In relation to Dread, no. It is as much a A to B storyline as this one. It sets up the characters from the start with slight backstories, but once you actually start on the ground floor of the building, then it just moves forward relentlessly. And like the raid, you do cut to scenes involving the villain. In this case, what's her name? Lena. Lena Hetty. Lena Hetty. We cut to her- Mama. Mama. We cut to Mama planning her various schemes and attacks on our characters, but we don't go beyond that. And I guess another feature of a film that I like is that it probably moves around in time more, usually forward, so you'll skip a day or you'll skip hours. Neither of these films do this. They feel like they're more or less in real time. Like as you go from floor to floor, from hit to hit, you're moving forward in the space geographically and you're not jumping forward to the next day or the next week. And again, nothing wrong with that. It's just that they're the types of films I tend to like more. But I enjoyed Dread as well for almost the same reasons as The Raid. I actually think it's really underrated. Like I really like 
some of the details. Again, I know the slow motion effect can be a crutch because it's just a, like a sexy visual, but it really works in the way that they use it to torture people. Like, for example, if someone's going to die and they're injected with a drug, they experience their death really slowly, which I think is, is quite an innovative way to imagine how you could use that drug in a negative sense. And I really like the actors as well. Like, I really like Carl Urban. I like the main lead. What's her name? Olivia. Olivia somebody or another. Thurlby? Yes, Olivia Thurlby. I think she's great. And, of course, yeah, Lena Hedy or Hedy is fantastic as Mama. So I really enjoyed Dread. I'm actually surprised it didn't do as well, and I'm surprised they haven't made a sequel because as a film and as a comic book adaptation, I think it's pretty strong. So maybe it comes down to the fact that it was made outside the Hollywood system and they just didn't feel committed to having to do a franchise or it was such a struggle to get money in the first instance. It had to make a lot of money to justify a sequel, and this case, unfortunately, it didn't. But if you read online on the websites and stuff, there's a lot of excitement. Like, you know, as much as a film with a $35 to $40 million film can it have a cult following, this film seems to have a pretty cult following. Yeah, definitely. I remember there being a whole bunch of petitions, including ones endorsed by Carl Urban himself, to make a sequel to the movie. I feel like this movie has a lot of love online, and to be honest, justifiably so. It's pretty good. It's a pretty damn good movie. Like you said, the slow-mo stuff is awesome. Like It really gives it some visual pop. I like that it's a self-contained story set over, like you say, something in real time. I'm not sure what the Irishman version of Dread would be. Maybe that would float your boat. You want to see the life and the consequences of a life as dread, perhaps? Is that your whack set over many years? Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I love Martin Scorsese, but as a segue, I didn't enjoy The Irishman as much as, say, Goodfellas, maybe because it was spread over too many years. And- oh, okay, so there's a perfect number of years. There's a perfect number of time that a film should be set over, and that is- 28 years, only 28, 28 years. years. <laughs> Okay, 28 years. Okay, we'll find that movie. Not a year more, a year years. less. That's right. Okay, well, good to know. I like how violent it is. It is ridiculously bloody, and they really use that slow-mo to full effect with, like, people being blasted apart. And I suppose because of all of that, I can also see why the movie might have been sort of off-putting to people, why it wasn't necessarily a, a huge breakout hit. It's, it's fairly grim. You never see the main character's face. It's incredibly violent. The last time anyone saw a movie about this character, it was sort of a, an underperforming, critically, I was going to say critically reviled, but that seems really mean. Critically what? Critically shat upon, <laughs> sliced alone movie, which I liked. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it feels like a cult movie. Like, it's earned its cult status, but I'm not surprised it didn't become a massive breakout hit. I'm really stunned that with a 35 to $40 million US budget, they made it R-rated, which is... MA in Australia. Like, I know it's really trendy now to make R-rated films like Logan and the Deadpool films, but this film predates that. And if you're making an independent film, and I know this isn't independent in the same way as The Raid or independent like a kind of like low-key French or Australian drama, but it is independent in that it's made with money cobbled together from various sources outside the traditional Hollywood studio system. 
once you go to an R rating, there's a strong risk you just lose a certain audience because legally those younger teenagers can't see that film. And teenagers do make up a substantive proportion of the contemporary audience who go and see comic book adaptations. So I was really surprised it was that violent and it works for the film and I'm glad it is in the film and it makes the film different to many of those other comic book adaptations and is totally suited to the theme of this character being, what is he, judge, jury, and executioner. I think you do want to be violent and that suits the story, but from a commercial point of view, it could be pretty off-putting as you said. Yeah, but I'm not sure I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. I wonder if if you'd made it PG-13, for instance, to try and get more of them lucrative teenagers, you might have just got nobody. You might have pissed off the the fans of the comic book, but also those people who might otherwise have preferred. I mean, Deadpool is like got that winkingly ironic fucking, you know, dumb comedy thing that I suppose just plays into it being just a good old time, just a good old bunch of laughs. Just a bunch of Deadpool laughs. Just a bunch of Deadpool shooting up people and saying the quips laughs. Just a bunch of Ryan Reynolds having a good time as Deadpool laughs. You know, this doesn't have this. This has just Carl Urban's grimace. And, you know, are people out there for a $50 million violent grimace movie? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Well, we actually agree with each other because I myself do think it would have potentially not had an audience. And I'm just surprised that when you're putting that much money up, the producers and the executive producers just don't start erring on the caution, on the side of caution, even though that's the wrong thing to do. So I actually agree with you. It was the right move to make it R-rated. It was the right move to make it violent for the reasons I mentioned before in that I think the violence suits the idea, the concept underpinning the entire story that this guy is judge, jury, and executioner. I do think you want to have some of that kind of raw violence to depict what is the outcome when on the streets someone is basically adjudicating your life with a gun in the moment. So it works in that sense. And I also think it had to try and differentiate itself from the 95 Stallone film, which was a PG-13 softer adaptation and didn't lean into that premise as much. Was it PG-13, the original Stallone one? I can't recall if it was PG-13 or PG, but it certainly wasn't yeah, It wouldn't have been PG. Are you sure it wasn't R-rated? Oh, let's look it up right now, shall we? Why don't you get clicking? Okay. For those who haven't seen the film, you should check it out. There's a scene where a couple of characters fall from a building and they land like bloody pancakes. And they show most of that. It is uh, quite uh, impactful. Excuse the pun. You'll be pleased to know, Ben, that the original 1995 Judge Dredd was in fact rated R by the MPAA for continuous violent action and also Armando Sante's acting. Wow, interesting. I do recall at the time being quite turned off by this scene where there's this scene with Wesley Snipes who has this spectacular- What fucking movie are you talking about? That's Demolition Man. Oh, confuse my movies. Dude, what the fuck? I mean, Demolition Man is a great movie, so you need to go back and watch that. Apparently, you also need to watch Drudge Shed from 1995 because this is a shameful moment. This is a shameful moment in film podcasting history. This is embarrassing. So, I now recall I've had a flashback. Okay. So, hang on. So, was Sandra Bullock in Demolition Man or Judge Dredd? So, Demolition Man is Sandra Bullock, Wesley Snipes, Sylvester. Okay. But Rob Schneider is in both. Maybe that's where you're confused because I know you're a big fan of Rob. 
This is that situation where there's a movie that everyone thinks exists, which is about who's that black American comedian? Shazam. Shazam. Where everyone Starring thinks. Sinbad. Yeah. Everyone thinks there's a movie called Shazam that features the actor Sinbad, but there isn't. But somehow in the collective consciousness, everyone assumes that there is. In my head, I've actually put together that Dread is Demolition Man and the same dynamic exists between a young female rookie teaming up with a grisly veteran and Wesley Snipes is the baddie. Listen, don't blame the Mandela effect on you making this mistake. I mean, look, perhaps it's an easy mistake to make. Maybe, maybe not. I think in the original 1995 Judge Dredd, Diane Lane plays the part that you're thinking of, that Sandra Bullock played the part of in Demolition Man, that Olivia Thirlby plays the part of in this Dredd. It's very confusing. It's not that confusing. <laughs> okay. Now, before we move on to the awards, anything you want to comment on in relation to, let's start with coincidence or ripoff between both these films. I mean, there can't be a coincidence or, I mean, there can't be a ripoff if there was no ripoff. I mean, coincidence, yeah. I mean, the premises are pretty similar, although they're only similar in that it's about a cop going up a building. The specificity of how it all goes down is quite different. Wouldn't you agree? I mean- yeah, 100%. I mean, besides having the high-rise building and the baddie on the top of that building, how it goes down is very different. And it is different as well that there is a buddy dynamic in Dread, which there isn't in the raid. He is very much alone. There's no one there holding his back. Whereas in Dread, the two of them look after each other. And that's a significant part of the story where he's quite distrustful of her at the start and takes her on reluctantly. And In the film, it's expressed that this is like her final test or her exam before she graduates to being a judge herself. And that's like a feature throughout the storyline that this is a test a day, but this is like a test of her mettle in every situation. And that feature doesn't appear at all in The Raid. No. I mean, it's quite cool in The Raid that he has the other members of his cop team who are, you know, sort of killed off and I think- Maybe, you know, seeing Joe Taslim in there who gets killed by Mad Dog, played by Yayan Ruihan, who rules. He's the bearded bloke who works for the villain. So by the end, he's really a cop all all alone. I guess you're right that Olivia Thilby is a new cop, first day on the job or last day as a rookie or final test or whatever. It's sort of That's sort of a classic trope, but it feels like a little fresh. Yeah, I think the other thing about... The other film, The Raid, is that there's a surprise about who he knows inside the building, which doesn't feature in Dread. And that's, should we do spoilers? Spoilers. I think I've already said it. Yeah. I think I said it earlier. Yeah. So, spoilers if you haven't seen The Raid and you missed Gabe's little spoiler drop before. And that is that the two IC or one of the senior criminals who works for the main gangster turns out to be the protagonist's brother. Yeah, yeah. And one of the cops obviously is working for the criminals and, you know, allegiances will be tested and so on and so forth. Yeah, so they basically both have a rat in each side, so to speak, or a contact on either side of the fence, which complicates the story as it progresses. Yeah. Is there any other obvious similarities? People get thrown down the centre of the building. People get thrown off the building. Yeah, sure. People get shot. Both buildings are trapped. So it's hard to get out. Like it's just the way the buildings are structured. In Dread, it's much clearly locked up. Like a button is pressed and the entire building goes into this 
shut down like it's preparing for a cyclone or something where you just physically yeah. can't even jump out the windows. Whereas in Raid, it's more of a conventional building. Thread has that scene where the doors come down and squash the homeless bloke. Yeah, that was a great example of- To demonstrate how powerful these doors are. Yeah. Hey, look out. And he's just totally squashed like a pancake as well. Yeah, the other thing about the films, I guess there is a general movement upwards as a similarity. As a difference, guns are more of a feature in Dread. And also, we mentioned the drug slow-mo before, but the raid is very much hand-to-hand combat, whereas Dread uses explosions and guns and different types of weapons for most of the film. There's very little hand-to-hand combat at all. Which film has aged better, do you think? I think both of these films have aged pretty well. I mean, the visual effects and, and so on in Dread is still holds up pretty good. And action in the raid, I mean, the action in the raid is excellent. Neither of them feel weirdly dated. None of the filmmaking feels dated. None of the attitudes in the film feel dated. So I think they've both equally aged like fine creme brulee. <laughs> I do think that both films could have potentially aged badly because The Raid was made on a prosumer camera back in 2011 or so. Nine years is a long time in tech. But because they leaned into the grimy, gritty aesthetic from the start, then I think you just review it and watch it, much like you watch a Super 16 Bolex film or something. Like You just accept that's the visual texture of the film. It doesn't look like it is, you know, like some of those early HD cameras that George Lucas used, you know, on The Phantom Menace or when people were sort of experimenting for the first time with HD and looked really overtly video. I think The Raid holds up quite well with reasonably shallow depth of field and not trying to make it look like a 35mm camera. Like it is, it is definitely grimy. And with Dread... Some of those slow motion cameras from 10, 15 years ago can look also like a GoPro, like an action camera, but I think it stands up as being really quite cinematic. So, yeah, I think they both lasted quite well. I should say I love the look of those early, not the prequel movies, fuck those. I don't even think I've watched them since I saw them in the cinema, but, but well, I love the look of those early digital movies like Michael Mann's Miami Vice and Collateral. I think that sometimes when a aesthetic specifically dates a movie, I like that. It says to me, oh, this was a movie made in a specific time and place. And I even like it when it makes it feel like a movie made in a specific time and place, when that movie is set in a completely different time and place, like Public Enemies. Yeah, I said it. The photography in Public Enemies is awesome. For those listening who haven't seen Public Enemies, it looks like it was shot on the iPhone 3G, iPhone 4, but it's a period gangster piece. And what Gabe has said is arguably contentious. It's arguably contentious. Okay. Well, I'd say you saying it looks like it was filmed on an iPhone is arguably more contentious and probably doing a damn disservice to um, Dante Spinotti who shot the thing. Oh, shots fired. Okay. How about plot holes or missed opportunities before we get onto the awards? What could the filmmakers have done better with this shared high concept? Let's start with the raid. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you said you would like you would have liked a couple more little subplots in there. No, I didn't say that. I said I like films that have more subplots, but this wouldn't work for this sort of film. Like this film is pure cinema in the sense that there's little dialogue, it's seeing, not hearing, and it's got this very clean A to B storyline. 
So I think, you know, for what it is, it has to be that. I did actually enjoy the raid too, which some people found a little bit too drawn out and melodramatic and too much like it was trying to be the Godfather. But I really enjoyed it because it actually gave those character beats, but also provided some really entertaining action sequences involving car fights and so on. So I guess if I was to suggest anything, it'd be something like The Raid 2. But I like the idea that if it was The Raid and then it evolved to The Raid 2. That works for me. Right. And then The Raid 3 would be, like we discussed, the maybe not The Irishman, The Goodfellas of Raids. It would be many years of The Raid. That's the natural end point for you, for the Raid franchise. I guess so. Apparently, he's been asked if there'll be a Raid 3, and he said no. And it seems he went for something much more low-key with The Apostle, which was a film mainly full of character beats. So it looks like he won't be revisiting the Raid franchise anytime soon. And perhaps, yeah, the nature of this storyline shouldn't become The Irishman again, but- you know, just has sort of run its course. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, I don't really know where you'd go after the raid two. There's only so many times you can there's only so many times you can beat up Mad Dog in movies or characters played by Yaya Ruhan. But um interestingly, and we might have tell me if we were actually gonna get to this in a later part of this pod, but did you hear that um on Dread, Alex Garland took over editing and the director Pete Travis was removed from the film? I didn't, but I've been curious about this because I thought it was directed really well. But if I go to IMDb and look at Pete Travis's filmography, it seems to have tanked since this film, which made me think that things didn't go smoothly in either production or post-production. Yeah. Well, I mean, according to internet sources, Alex Garland took over editing and Peter Travis was locked out of the editing room, as they say. And Garland felt he did enough work on the film where he wanted a co-director credit. But which is interesting because I don't really think that just working in the cut would be enough to give you a co-director credit. So I wonder if there's even more to this story and Garland was maybe on set and there was a lot of disagreements on set or even in, or even beginning in pre where Garland had very strong opinions on things. In fact, I think later Travis and Garland released a statement saying that they had an unorthodox collaboration and that was they had agreed to this unorthodox collaboration. So I don't know, maybe it was a case of too many cooks or just differing visions on how the film should be executed. But it still feels like quite a cohesive work, like a cohesive film. So however they got there, they did well. Yeah, we've both heard that expression before that some of the best films have some of the messiest history and often that isn't the case at all. I do feel it's very cohesive. And I'm not surprised to hear anything you've mentioned to me, particularly if you look back on this film retrospectively, where you've got this guy, Alex Garland, who back in 2000 is quoted as saying he wanted to be a filmmaker, he didn't have any ins, he didn't have any connections, so he wrote a book, The Beach, where he could basically be everything, the editor, producer, director, the writer of that story and slowly inched his way towards the the director's chair. I wouldn't be surprised, looking at where his career has gone, that he wanted to direct this film. He couldn't, for various reasons, perhaps because he hadn't directed anything beforehand. They bring a director with more experience, but then basically Alex Garland gets an opportunity to de facto direct in some capacity. 
And that story and where he's gone since would make sense in terms of the chronology of his creative output. I guess the interesting thing for me is no matter how much he was present on set, standing shoulder to shoulder with Pete Travis, he doesn't deserve, in my mind, a directing credit for being an editor. I mean, that just seems silly. Like, editing is the credit. Like, that's what it is. So, like you said, there must be something else where he was heavily involved in pre-production and heavily involved on set because to simply edit the film himself or work beside an editor, to me, is in no way in itself a directing credit. No, no. Although, interestingly, Urban, Mr. Carl Urban himself said that he believed Dredge should be considered Alex Garland's directorial debut. So he's obviously privy to some some information and has let his opinion be known there. So, yeah, I mean, maybe Alex was very vocal on set, which must have been a real, real nightmare for Pete Travis if you'd gone and given an actor direction and then the writer is standing there also giving them direction. It sounds like basically a situation like the Russo brothers or the Coen brothers where you've got like co-directors and someone might be sort of talking to the actors, someone's talking to the DOP, the cinematographer, and they're working together. And what might have been happening is Pete Travis is there with familiarity as to when to call action and cut. He's there to understand how lighting works and how to move the pace of the production along. He's essentially acting like a second unit director, really. Was that- or a first AD. Or a first AD, yeah. And Alex Garland's- That's, I, I reckon there'd be much more to it than that. There's no way he's just there to what say, yes, I approve of that lighting and we're ready to go now. Yeah. No, it's probably like they're co-directing on set is how I, I'd say it is. I'd say that Alex Garland's there with headphones on beside him with the script and very involved in giving him notes as they shoot. That's my prediction. Or maybe he was very involved in pre-production in terms of- the look and the feel of the film and the casting, which again must have been very frustrating for Pete Travis. But yeah, yeah. And look, even if Alex Garland's right, if everything he's saying is right, yeah, it'd still be a huge pain in the neck. Director needs a level of authority for the set to run. You have to understand that they are the final kind of creative say. So as soon as you've got someone else going, oh, actually, actually, that's how I think Alex Garland sounds apparently. Well, actually, uh, Judge Dredd should, uh, his grimace should be uh, grimmier. It would be a real pain in the butt. But who knows? Maybe Pete Travis is a dickhead. I don't know. <laughs> we, we will never know. Well, we have kind of strayed into trivia. So why don't I All right. round out the trivia with a bit of uh, casting woulda, shoulda, couldas before we get to the awards. So with The Raid, that film was designed around those martial arts stars. So not surprisingly, there aren't any you know surprises there. Have you heard of any backstories as to any other people being cast? In the raid? No, no. But, I mean, if they were martial artists first, I think they do a pretty good job in the film with the dramatic beats they need to play. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know anything beyond that except to say, man, he's a short guy, but Yayan Ruhan plays a hell of a henchman. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, Okay, let's jump to Spot the Aussie. Could you spot any Aussies in either film? (laughs) <laughs> Look, I've watched The Raid a number of times looking for an Australian and I, I haven't spotted one. No one in the dread, I think. Did I miss someone? No, nothing at all. I couldn't spot anyone at all. So I think this is one of those few films, these films that don't suffer 
from not having an Aussie in them. <laughs> they don't suffer. Oh, yeah, every film is improved by at least one Australian somewhere, and these ones are, are exceptions, not the rule. Exactly. All right, let's jump to the box office. So which movie do you think was the box office champ? I would imagine Dread made more money overall, but as a proportion to its budget, surely The Raid is the winner here. Yeah, The Raid, as you said earlier, cost $1.1 million and made $9.3 million at the box office. Dread, I think I mentioned before, cost between 30 and $45 US million and made $41.5 million. So, yeah. IMDb says $50 million for Dread. These box office figures are always such like a, where do they get, like, who knows? Either way, at the box office, Dread didn't do as well for its budget and would have had to have made a lot of money on Blu-ray sales and rentals on VOD to try and make up for that. So for that reason, probably no surprise there hasn't been a sequel. Yeah, although it wasn't Dread the highest selling DVD sell through something or other. Didn't it play gangbusters on DVD and Blu-ray? Didn't it top the home video charts? I think it did, and that's also why there's that huge cult following. But I guess at the end of the day, no matter how popular it is on there, that's a lot of extra money to make up. And the residuals these days in digital rentals aren't as good as hard copies, and not many people are buying hard copies anymore. But at least back in 2012, more people would have been than they are now. According to the internet, the Carl Urban starring film sold 650,000 physical units as of 2013. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how the proceeds from that are chopped up, who gets what, and what the cost of each of those physical units is. But yeah, I mean, obviously, there was a good word of mouth around the movie based on the 19 people who saw it at the cinema or whatever that spread enough that, yeah, it did good business there on uh, on Blu-ray and DVD. Well, speaking of word of mouth, both. let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. So have a guess which one topped the charts on the audience and critics' tomato meter, starting with The Raid. I feel like The Raid probably overall has better reviews. Yeah, that's my guess, The Raid, The Raid. I'm going with The Raid, lock in The Raid. Okay, well, you're pretty much on the money there. The Raid with fans has 87% versus 72% with Dread. And with the critics, the Raid scored 86 versus Dread's 79. So they're actually closer in reactions from audiences and critics than you might have expected. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not surprised that they're both quite well-reviewed. Movies, they do what they say on the box very well. So you got to get over that. What is it on the tomato meter for a critic's review to be considered fresh? It's got to be the equivalent of a three out of five. Yeah, which I think is about over 70%, isn't it? Three out of five. Three out of five would be 60%. Oh, you're right. There you go. Oh, look at you go. Maths, mate. Look at you, uh, yeah. boy genius. Oh, they don't call me the math magician for nothing. So, so yeah, I mean, I can't imagine it. I would like to know what these people who would have given either of these films less than just a three out of five had took umbrage with. Well, perhaps they wanted more uh, subplots. And Well, maybe. There's always of, that. Set over a 28-year duration. Yes, exactly. All right, let's jump to the awards. All right, starting with best title, The Raid versus Dread. Gabe, name it. Both are good. I suppose The Raid, yeah. You love titles that are what they say on the box. We always come back to this. 
the rate. You always say that. I think you're trying yeah. to basically no. convince the audience that that's the only type of title that I like. Well, I mean, tell me the a title of a movie you like that has a really you're never like, oh yes, my favorite movie title is Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because I saw a title for an Australian film the other day that's coming out that's set, I think, in the 50s in the middle of Australia, and it's about nuclear testing. And the title of that film was known as Fallout, which is a double meaning because it deals with both the reference to radiation in terms of nuclear testing, but also some sort of conflict that arises with an Indigenous family who are living in the area where the testing happens. And I thought- that's a great title because it refers to both a fallout with the local First Nations community, but also a reference to nuclear fallout. But I guess they changed it because the film Rogue Nation, is it Rogue Nation? No, Rogue, what is it? Just um, Mission Impossible Fallout has already stolen that title. So they've renamed- Yeah, or the, the immensely popular video game series. Uh, yeah. Or Fallout. Or that, exactly. And so it's been retitled Buffalo which is kind of odd to me because that's not actually an Australian animal. So I can't see on the tin any correlation with the story as described in the synopsis. So Fallout just seemed like a great title, which had like a double meaning and wasn't too on the nose, whereas Buffalo seems too obscure. So for me, it comes back to sometimes it depends on the film. Like being John Malkovich, it is what it is but it suits the wackiness of that film. It just depends. It just depends. So I'm not always about the obvious title, but to me, (laughs) I see a title can be like a synopsis, but basically rather than being 20 words, it's three. Okay, so does the raid fulfil that criteria or would you have preferred it called Indonesian Cop versus Crim Tower? No, the raid is perfect. And the raid also, I think to me, and this jumps to the poster, which we'll get to now, as in which is the best poster, to me often a title can work with the poster. And so it's both the visual juxtaposed with the words and that one in the raid has a high rise, the word, the raid at the top of the poster and our lead character looking up at, I guess, the impending doom he's about to experience for 140 minutes. So, funnily enough, the Dread poster is Mr. Dread standing atop a building, and you could almost combine the posters and put Dread atop that building of the raid. So you got Iku Uwai looking up at Dread atop that building, and mash those two movies up, and there you go. That's your sequel. You know, I reckon we could do a whole podcast where we basically blend films. And this idea came to me when I heard about this idea that maybe Jason Statham when he first entered the Fast and Furious franchise, was entering as his character from the transporter. And I thought, in a world where Hollywood is desperate to try and build out franchises to have world building, another cheap way to do that is actually just to link pre-existing franchises, which already have their own worlds already, and just link the worlds. And this could be the next film. This could be a film said in the future, the not-too-distant future, where both these guys come together as a team to do the ultimate raid. I mean, let's face it, Statham basically plays the same character in everything, just with a new name. So 
the the Statham cinematic universe is totally plug-inable in anything. You know, is he the transporter? Is he the character he played in the opening of Collateral? Is he lock, stock and two smoking barrels? Who knows? He is all of those things in every movie. Is he Meg? Well, apparently John Wick was going to appear as a cameo at the end of the Fast and Furious spin-off Hobbs and Shaw, and they're going to link those worlds. So, Really? Yeah. No, that's so stupid. And apparently there's a reference to... The Italian job in, I think, The Fast and Furious, where they actually, sorry, in Hobbs and Shaw, where you actually see Jason Statham's little mini in his car and he refers to a previous job. And that film also starred Charlize Theron. It's complicated. Awful. All right. So, best poster, which one? The Raid or Dread? The Raid. He's going into the building and Dread, he's standing atop it. It doesn't make sense. I agree. So, we both agree. So, The Raid wins for both best title and best poster. Now, we've been talking for quite a while in our return. We're clearly very excited to be back on the mics for season two. So I'll have to bang through these awards. So let's go to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who got their big break in these twin movies, jumping from something small before to one of these movies? Well, surely it's the blokes from The Raid. They were in this and then. They got to be in Star Wars in one scene or two shots of one scene. That's a leap. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Cal Urban probably had a career highlight more with, say, the Star Trek franchise. So he was already pre-established. And this film, I guess, is a lead, but it just didn't elevate his career in any way, nor did it elevate Olivia's. So, yeah, I agree. I think the Raid guys definitely made the big break. Let's jump to the Before They Were Famous Award, a.k.a. the Blink or You'll Miss Them. Any famous faces that appeared early on in their career in either of these films who have since gone on to go do something bigger? Well, I mean, I suppose you could also say it's the same with the Raid guys. You know, Iku Awai was in the Raid and now he's doing forgettable Mark Wahlberg action programmers, and then occasionally also doing more awesome Indonesian action movies like The Night Comes For Us. If you haven't seen The Night Comes For Us, would also highly recommend. Yeah, I think those guys definitely, but also I'd say Domhnall Gleeson. Oh, yeah, he turns up in uh, Dread, right? Yeah, he's the guy who has the, what, computer-enhanced eyes? Yeah, had Mama had taken his eyes out or something, right? He's sort of her hacker. Yeah. A miserable hacker. Yeah. He's sad and miserable. He's been caught. He's been forced to hack for Mama. I think audiences would know him as the guy that is the two I see in the recent Star Wars films. I haven't seen those, so I'm not sure about that. But I would know General him Hux. as- I, again, I have no idea what you're talking about. I liked him in the Richard Curtis 2013 romantic comedy About Time. Audiences, if you haven't seen About Time, it is a fantastic film. And if you're someone who likes a good romantic comedy, but they are few and far between, I think you'd enjoy it. It has pathos, baby. It has pathos. It's very yeah, well yeah, done. No irony. I, I really liked it. Yeah, totally. All right. Let's go, jump to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? For me, I've mentioned him before, but Yayan Ruhihan as Mad Dog in The Raid absolutely rules in, in that film. And in Dread, hmm, not sure. Who would you say in Dread? Who who turns up in a small role in that? Yeah, there wasn't Any a- votes for anyone in Dread? No. No, no, no one 
to me nah. is so overwhelmingly good. It wasn't that type of film where there was an opportunity for someone to shine separately. So, no, I agree. Good choice. All right, let's jump ahead to the Dustin Diamond Award. <laughs> Named after- For season two, we're going to come up with a few more, uh, few more names for this award. Okay. Who did make the most of their opportunities after appearing in either of these films? I don't know. I think everyone's doing all right, aren't they? Lena Headey was in Game of Thrones. Carl Urban's still in, in Things. He's got that popular Amazon show about superheroes. The Boys. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I haven't seen that either. Look, I was really surprised that Olivia Thilby hasn't gone on to do more. I thought she was really good in this film. And in a small role, I thought she really elevated it. But if you look on her filmography and IMDb, she hasn't kicked on as other actors would have done with the opportunity. So I am surprised by that because I think she's good. Hmm, okay, fair enough. We'll give it to her then. Oh, it's a sad award. Sorry, Olivia, yeah. to get the Dusted Diamond Award. But you can collect at any start time that's suitable for you. Hey, at least you didn't stab a guy. Who stabbed a guy? I believe Dustin Diamond stabbed a guy. Oh, that's right. He did too. So, well, let's not rule it out. No. She can always hope. Okay, the winner, winner, chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in these movies? So for each of these movies, who do you think, I guess, really shined? Let's start with The Raid. Iku Wai and Joe Taslim, right? I'd say Gareth Evans myself. Oh, yeah, good call. The director, writer, editor. I think he made these guys on on the big screen come to life and- yeah, I just think he kind of reinvented low-budget action films for this 10-year period. So I'd say him myself. That's fair. Okay, give it to him. Give it to him. How about Dread? I don't know. Alex Garland? No, he, I guess he was already doing pretty good. Carl Urban? Yeah, he was already doing pretty good. I don't know. Who are you going to give it to? Who do you reckon? Yeah, I don't think anyone was really All right. hitting their strides. No so I think... Uh, Gary Gareth gets it in this case. Get out of here, Dread. It's all Gareth Evans. Okay, let's go. Best Dialogue Award. This is tough. An action film that isn't a 90s quip-driven vehicle. I can't think of many, but what's your favourite quote, starting with The Raid? (laughs) I can't remember any. I felt that the dialogue was stripped back, um, efficient, but pulling trigger is like ordering takeout, says Mad Dog at one point. Oh, that's a nice you know? line. I like that one. Yeah. That's good. That's good. What about Dread? Any- I recall there being a few pretty funny one-liners. Yeah, there's some great lines. There's one. I mean, I think that film kind of probably takes some great lines from the actual comic book series. There's a great line where Chief Judge says, sink or swim, chuck her in the deep end. And Dread responds, it's all a deep end. Like, yeah, good okay. line, good line, good line. Sir, a helmet can interfere with my psychic abilities. Think a bullet might interfere with them more. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's got some good lines. By the way, as a side note, I did think it was, it felt like an excuse to have her not wear a helmet because to have two main characters wear helmets would just be too inaccessible to empathise with the characters. As it oh, transpires, totally. it works. That yeah, It makes so much sense that she's got psychic ability and I'm glad we see her face. But I wonder what it came first, them inventing an excuse for her not to wear a helmet or- they just were conveniently able to justify it after the fact because mm. she had psychic abilities. Because to me, it would have been a nightmare for her to have another skill like, you know, extreme empathy or something like that, which would beat from her heart. And then have to justify why she her face is covered the entire time 
just like dreads. Like I feel that they basically thought, you know what? He has to wear a helmet all the time. The fanboys hated the fact that Stallone didn't wear his helmet all the time in the 95 film. We have to give him someone whose face we can see to make him more approachable through association. Therefore, how can we justify her not wearing it? Don't know. Good question. Perhaps she's in the comic books. Who knows? Who knows? Someone write in and tell us. Okay, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, The Raid. Who do you think chewed it the most? Again, I'd probably give it to Yayan Ruhian as Mad Dogs, although I guess the guy who plays the sweaty, corpulent mob boss is, you know, imbuing his character with a certain grotesque charm. What about you? Anyone in the in the raid uh, chew that scenery? Yeah, Mad Dogs goes pretty big. You get the feeling he's a martial arts artist first, actor second. In Dread, uh, look, I kind of feel like Carl Urban is, but that's also his character. But it does feel like he's taken eight weeks of acting classes to try and see how he can channel his entire performance into his lower jaw. There is a pretty l- good though. It is good. It's actually very good. Like, like he does a lot with that. It's actually yeah. credit where credit's due. Um, I do feel Lena Headey, Mama, is pretty big, but it suits the performance. So I think Mad Dogs wins this one again. Wow, he's taken them all out. Now, is Mad Dogs up for the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself? Well, I'd say in the raid, everyone's just happy to get paid. No one's doing this for big bucks. But I guess Mad Dogs and the main actor would be happy to be on screen opposed to wasn't the first one a delivery man? So he'd be just happy to be acting on screen. Yeah, sure. I don't think anyone in either of these movies is taking a paycheck. They're not like Kelsey Grammer in The Expendables 4. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Harrison Ford in anything made after 2006. <laughs> All right, that one's a draw with no winners. Let's jump to the Stephen Tobolowski Award, named after the guy who appeared in Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which acted triggered, hey, it's that guy, when he or she appeared on screen. I suppose as a fan of The Wire, it's Wood Harris uh, turning up in dread as one of Mama's henchmen. He played the character of Avon Barksdale in The Wire, and it's always nice to see really anyone from The Wire turn up and stuff and be like, hey, look, it's Avon Barksdale from The Wire, or why people just still call Idris Elba Stringer Bell. When he turns up in things. Yeah, I had exactly the same guy, Athon. Same reaction. So no one else in the raid appeared before in anything. So, yep, Avon gets it. All right, jumping on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Who do you have? Well, again, in the raid, I mean, everyone was relatively new. So maybe on the dread side, we should ask that question. Who's not cast Often enough. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, no one here really stands out as like, wow, you know, like, wow, put him in movies more, put her in movies more, put them in movies more. I feel like this award might be a no-show. No one turned up to collect it because no one was nominated for it, unless you've got a – have you got? I think Avon. I'm surprised we haven't seen him more because he was actually – Wood Harris. You're giving it to Wood Harris. Yeah. Exactly. Avon Barksdale. Okay. He was great in The Wire. And if you look at the career of Idris Elba in comparison – I'm surprised Woody hasn't gone on to do more. So he get- I mean, Wood Harris still gets cast in a lot of things. He's in Empire, that TV series. He was in, you know, he's in Justified. He turns up in movies. But, yeah, I mean, certainly he hasn't hit the uh, the lofty heights of being a villain in a Fast and Furious spinoff. 
<laughs> and they are lofty heights. Okay, speaking of lofty heights, let's jump to the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage in Gone and 60 Seconds. Gabe, who steals the cake? Do you think Judge Dredd's surname is actually Dredd? Like, do you think his name is like Nathan Dredd or Stephen Dredd or like Philip Dredd? Yeah, this feels to me like a film I just saw two nights ago, again, Doctor Strange, the Marvel film, where he's actually a doctor and his surname is Strange and he just happens to inherit skills that are strange superpower skills. So. I think it must be his actual name because it's not spelled it Dread. I just looked it up. It is his name is Joseph. He's Joe Dread. Yeah, right. Okay, and just happens to sound like the correct spelling to fear something, to be dreading something. Yeah, you're right. Though it is funny in that, like, we're going to call our hero Jonathan Goodman. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Goodwill Hunting. His name's not Will Good. No, but his name is Will Hunting. <laughs> Oh, okay. See that? Now I get it, finally. Now you get that title. I didn't understand that movie until this moment. Yeah. It took 23 years, but we got there. Anyway, I reckon Hieronymus Dredd or something would be better if he had a real goofy first name. Yeah. Or just something that's simple like Greg, Greg Dredd. (laughs) Greg Dredd. But what if his surname was like uh, Strasbourg? I don't know. No. What's a bad, what's a silly surname? Oh, if his name was Ian Happy, that'd be hard. I mean, it'd be be hard going to work each day like, oh, there's Judge Happy. As he's mercilessly executing people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ah, oh, Judge Happy. He he does love his job though. <laughs> like, sure, he looks. He's got a scowl the whole time, but inside, he's like, "Wee! I love my job. I love blasting people. I love being sort of proto-fascist cop. That's why I'm happy." But <laughs> on the outside, grim exterior. Inside, happy. <laughs> Okay, let's jump to the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up against a group of baddies in a single location, <laughs> just like Under wow. Siege. So, did this film, through ultimate flattery or imitation, leave a legacy of inspiring a similar crop of clones? Have we seen many so other films asking- set in one location in a building? Where a cop is trying to take down a bunch of criminals. Die Hard. Uh, yeah, I can't think of one. No, I can't think of anything recently, but I'm sure there'll be one very soon. I mean, there is that remake in the works. Apparently, the gossip on the remake of The Raid that an Aussie director, Patrick Hughes, was originally attached to direct, and then he left the project. And then Joel Carnahan, who I really like, took over The Reigns. Apparently, in that film, it's so different from The Raid that he's taken the script and he's going to make it by himself, and the producers of the Raid remake are going ahead and doing that separately from him. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I read something online where he's like, my Raid remake, it's going to be so different. Like, they're not even going to go into the building. It's like, okay. So, no Raid. Why are you? Yeah, like, all right. That's just like a different movie then, dude. Well, apparently that's what's going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying a Raid remake couldn't work or wouldn't be good. I think at one point, maybe it was when Patrick Hughes was going to do it, they'd announced it one of the Hemsworths might be in it. And I guess it's like, oh, yeah, all right. One of the things that made the, the original raid so great was the fight sequences and stuff. So, so leaning out of having someone who's capable of doing awesome martial arts and into someone who's the opposite of that, I don't know, it feels like you're missing the point of what made the original great and setting yourself up for something that's maybe just a bit, a bit lukewarm. 
Yeah, it is feel by definition that if you're going to remake the raid, you want to cast an actor who does his own stunts and it's someone like a Jackie Chan or Jet Li where you actually see their face on screen the entire time. And I'm thinking besides Tom Cruise, who doesn't do hand-to-hand combat as much, it has to be someone like that. I just can't think of who it could be. Who'd be a- if Tom Cruise did it, the whole movie would be set in a building that's actually falling from the low atmosphere back to Earth. So he's just spinning in space the whole time. Oh, totally. The building was on the moon. And each floor and is exploding as he ascends it. So there's no way back. He has to basically get from floor to floor as it explodes whilst taking down all the baddies until he gets to the very end of the building and then has to pilot the space shuttle home. Or just pilot the building. <laughs> pilot the building. The sheer strength of will of Tom Cruise allows him to land the building safely. And look, I'd see the shit out of that movie. I'm there for TC. So, <laughs> Okay, Gabe, we're near the end. It's time for that part of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to The Raid or Dread. Now, they're both about an elite police squad that's tasked with infiltrating a high-rise building run by a ruthless crime lord. This is our chance to remake that. This is our shot. Which film do we make a sequel to? And what's our pitch to make it? And we've got five minutes. Okay. What about this? What about we flip the raid and make it about ruthless criminals trying to infiltrate an elite police force building? Oh, I like it. To try and rescue someone who's locked up, like their crime lord boss. (laughs) Like Assault on Precinct 13. Exactly. But better. (laughs) Excellent. I don't exactly know how it's better, but it is. Or... Are we remaking or are we doing a sequel here? We're doing a sequel. Okay. To The Raid 2? Good question. Let's say we had to do a sequel to The Raid. So we're ignoring Raid 2 or Dread. Let's go back to Dread, shall we? How would you do a sequel to Dread? Again, having not read the comics and only having seen the Sylvester Stallone movie and you having not remembered the Sylvester Stallone movie and, in fact, confused it with Demolition Man, there is a bit in the original Sylvester Stallone movie where he goes out into the wastelands. I think Mega City 1 is surrounded by wastelands, like some sort of like polluted shit town, sump, quagmire, sandy desert, what have you, where like mutants live. I'd like to see Dread go out there and um, fuck some shit up. Isn't that basically the first Mad Max where essentially he is a one-man judge, jury and executioner, and he's seeking revenge for the death of his wife and therefore he has become his own Judge Dredd, would we just be making the first Mad Max? Perhaps. Or what you could do is you could sort of think of a way to, I'm sure fans of the the comics, and in fact, as I say this out loud, I'm sure it's incredibly stupid, deconstruct the ideas around the character. Sort of not too dissimilar in a way, I guess, to how the later Dirty Harry movies were able to look at the character of Harry and in subtle and interesting ways sort of ask, like, oh, this character is like a, in a way, a judge, jury, and executioner. How moral is that? Perhaps you could do something like that. Perhaps they could be some sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of analysis on that idea. Yes, I'm steepling my fingers as I say this. All right, so we've decided we're going to do a sequel to Dread because there already is a sequel to The Raid. So I like it. So we're going perhaps into the wastelands. That's not bad. Let's just think about this. If you are 
Dread, not Demolition Man, and you are judge, jury, and executioner, what is the next step of that? Is it that you go too far and you kill someone innocent and have to seek redemption? Yes, I guess that's certainly something that could be explored. What happens when the judge, jury, and executioner gets it wrong? Or could it be that you actually lose someone close to you and so you then become the judge, jury, and executioner privately? So essentially it becomes like a Dirty Harry film where you're actually working though outside the law for yourself and you take off your badge, you take off the helmet, and you are still Judge Dredd. No, you're Dredd, not Judge Dredd. You're just Joe Dredd. You're Joe Dredd. Regular Joe Dredd. So basically, you take all those skills and that ideology, but apply it as a revenge film for the death of your wife and kids. So you're saying strip away those things like movies often do. You take away the things that gave that character power. Here, we're removing his ability to be judge, jury, and executioner. I would say, what about if we also removed his legs? Okay, so he's no legs in a wheelchair, and the defining character trait of his and the concept that he is a cop slash judge is all removed. And given that the first film was already called Judge Dread, sorry, it was called Dread without the judge, we've now got to basically called call it Joe Dread. Judge Dredd. Legs. Judge Legs. All right, point taken. We have to maintain all the features that he is an employed judge. So if he had a partner in the first film, he'd go solo in the second film, or he could be older into the future and he's training up another young judge, or he could be perhaps rejected by the police for going too far, if that's even possible. Or what if he grows a conscience and doesn't go far enough? Is there a possibility that he starts losing the capacity to be one of those three things, judge, jury, and executioner? And thus, how can he be a judge if you can't execute? Wait, wait. It's important which one he loses the power to do, though. Like, he can't be an executioner. Okay, that makes sense. But if he can't be a judge, he could be a jury and executioner. Kind of the same thing. Doesn't really matter. So it surely has to be that he loses the executioner part. So he can call people guilty, but he just can't bring himself to pull that trigger anymore. No, but the jury part is meant to be more like his impartial decision-making in that oh, okay. as a jury, you basically are looking at it very objectively, unlike a judge who looks at it through the lens of just one person. Uh, so if he was just a judge and executioner, he'd be basically deciding things in a more biased way. If he looks at it as just the jury without the judge bit, he's uncertain, but he's pulling the trigger regardless. Oh, and if he is right. judge and juror- or jury without being the executioner, eh, he's making decisions, they're good decisions, but not actually following through. But surely that's the one you want, though. Like That's the conscious part. Like He knows the difference between right and wrong, but he just can't now bring himself to meet out the type of justice that a fascistic police force demands of him and wonders that perhaps the world in which he's forced to cop so brutally and violently, what are the outcomes there? And perhaps he should try other forms of dispute resolution. Okay, so we've got two versions pitch here. We're running out of time. The producer from the Hollywood studio is looking at us going, guys, which way is this film going? I thought you'd had a cohesive plan before you walked in the door. <laughs> You're just fucking pitching anything, you freewheeling motherfuckers. God damn. I mean, I like brainstorming and so on, but guys, sure. get your shit together. Here's the deal. We've got two options for our film here. He basically goes rogue 
and he's executing and judging, but not in a considered way. He loses the juror a bit. So essentially, basically, he is off the leash. He has a badge and can do it with authority, but perhaps isn't making informed decisions before executing people. Or he grows a conscience and is both judge and jury, but can't pull the trigger. And so basically, he's having a career crisis where he's investigating, but just doesn't have the heart to pull the gun. One is the rogue guy with a badge, and one is the cop with a conscience with a badge as well. Which way are you leaning? Which one is the most interesting version of this story? I like judge mediation. I like judge dispute resolution through nonviolent means. So he basically becomes a divorce family court lawyer (laughs) where he says, look, guys, I've got this. I just don't have the heart anymore to pull the trigger, but I think I've got skills. I've got skills. That's exactly right. I can decide these things reasonably and fairly, but- you know, I can make a final call. I've got that covered. But just take me out of the game. I think it's time yeah. to hang up the trigger and put my attention into healthy dispute resolution for disgruntled divorcees. Totally. He's now in a world he doesn't understand where he just is there to scowl, but still while promoting understanding and assisting the aggrieved parties to identify their needs and interests. All right. So here's our pitch. It's basically world building the... 70s film Kramer versus Kramer meets Dread. And hang on, maybe this all starts when he gets divorced. And so the film is called Dread versus Dread. Dread v. Dread. Yeah. Maybe he married Elizabeth Thurbley for some reason, just so we can maintain some consistency. So we bring her back and we give her half a million for a cameo at the start, but she leaves him because he's just too focused on the job. Too much killing. His head's full of all these fucked up ideas. So she says, I can't be married to you. I'm taking our kid, whose name is Judge Reinhold, because I just thought okay, that yeah. was a nice way to give a bit of nod to Hollywood celebrity. Sure. She maybe leaves- Judd, but- Oh, no, maybe it's Judge. No, it's Judge. So she oh, takes dang. their little- The original Judge. <laughs> That's right. She takes their little son, five-year-old Judge, and leaves him, and then he has to basically represent himself because he's low on funds. And because he's also the jury and the judge. Exactly. So he, he can't and he can change one of those high-priced lawyers. So he represents himself in court, and it is a low-key drama featuring Dread. The sequel for Dread is Judge versus Dread, and it's about a guy who works out that he has to apply his judge and jury skills to the family court to reclaim custody or shared custody of his little five-year-old son named Judge, and maybe in the process discovers that, you know what, there's no need to be so adversarial. And in discovering his original love for his wife, they get back together and he goes back on the job, but this time with his gun, but the happy family life. Love, dread. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make a sequel to the comic book adaptation, Dread. I like it. All right, Gabe. That brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? On Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Try that. Try it indeed. Gabe is very amusing on Twitter, and if you want to enjoy some dry wit, you'll appreciate him in the Twitter sphere as much as you'll appreciate him in your earbuds. Ew. <laughs> that does sound a bit creepy. 
And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps, where you can find my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in all the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening, folks, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. See you, Ben. See you, Ben.